Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Tim Spivey, and I want to take you back to the Firestone Fieldhouse at Pepperdine University in 2017 for part one of part one of a lecture I gave there called I Told Me So, Overcoming Self-Deception in Our Walk with Christ. I hope this is something that will bless your life and help you move forward in your walk with Jesus. God bless you. Okay. Good morning, everybody. How are we feeling this morning? All right, I know, tired, I feel you on that one. Rough night up there in the dorms for us, uh, up there on the, on the Drescher campus. Um, but it is good to be here this morning. If you were down in the field house at 8.30 in the morning, you are greatest in the kingdom of God. God bless you. Um, we're going to talk about self-deception, and let me just tell you what we're after. Uh, my hope is that by the time that this class is over today and tomorrow, um, that our eyes will be opened to see some of the ways that we have a propensity to... Uh, lie to ourselves. Uh, and we live in a culture that prefers polite dishonesty to the truth in love. And that pervades the way that we see the world, the way that we do church, the way that we take a look at, at all the different things, the way that we see the world, the way we see life, the, the solutions we come up with to problems. It colors everything we do. So let me just give you a couple of reads. So if uh, this class kind of stirs something in you and you want to explore the subject further, I'm greatly indebted uh, because I stole his title particularly uh, to Craig Ten Elshoff is his name. He's a theology professor. Uh, he wrote the book, I Told Me So, which I saw the title and it just jumped off the page to me and I said, I want to get a, get a copy of that. So I did. And uh, I now actually have, I was so impacted by it that I actually use it to teach the Christianity and culture class here uh, that I do sometimes in the summer here at Pepperdine. Another one that I would call you, is, uh, call you to is leadership and self-deception. Uh, which is by the Arbinger Institute. And they begin talking about the subject in this way, and I would give it, those of you who are parents or grandparents will get this illustration. This is how they um, address the issue, kind of at the start of the book. They go, consider the following analogy. An infant is learning to crawl. She begins by pushing herself backward around the house. That's how my kids learned how to crawl. You ever see them? They can only go backward. They don't know how to go forward yet. So the infant is going back and forward around the floor, and they get lodged underneath some furniture. Now, they get frustrated by that because now they can't move because they can only go backwards. So they start thrashing about here and there. They might knock their head on something. Uh, they might begin to hurt themselves because they're thrashing around all over the place. If the infant could talk, they would blame the furniture for their troubles. After all, She's doing everything that she can think of. The problem couldn't possibly be hers, but of course, the problem is hers, even though she can't see it. And while it's true that she's doing everything she can think of, the problem is precisely that she can't see how she's the problem. Having the problem that she has, nothing she can think of is going to work. Whether at work or at home, I would submit to you, that's how self-deception works. We often will talk to one another and encourage one another to follow our conscience, to follow our hearts, to, to do those sorts of things. Um, but we can go back to the Garden of Eden and see how this begins to work, how humankind's propensity towards self-deception happens. When Adam and Eve are confronted by God, what do they do? The first thing they do is hide, right? They are convinced that we can hide from God, so let's try that one. They go ahead, they jump in the bushes, God says, where are you? And then when they finally are discovered, what's the next move? It was her fault. It was Satan's fault. Now, we live in a culture in which uh, Adam and Eve probably today 
would be given a free pass on that if it was another human being. But God sees through every veneer that we have. I want to just call you to this. If you think that the whole idea of self-deception is uh, something that maybe is, is uh, not something talked about in the Scriptures very much, um, I'm going to get there in a second. But let me just ask you, how is it that Peter, for instance, can believe without a shadow of a doubt that he's never going to betray Jesus, even though Jesus knows that he's going to do it three times? Oh, me? Never. I would never do that. How, how is it that people can convince themselves these days that if I sign my child up for travel sports and they miss church every Sunday virtually for their entire upbringing and I'm there watching them compete on a soccer field, that that will build our family together more than us coming to worship together for the same 18 years? How do they talk themselves into it? How can church leaders, for instance, blame the congregation that they themselves have led since its inception for all of its problems? How is it that someone can convince themselves it's God's will that they not, for instance, pray for the president because he's too evil? How, does these, how do these things happen? How can we think that we're better than we are? Or how can we think that we're worse than we are? It works both ways. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're worse than we are or that we're better than we are. The Bible speaks of our propensity to deceive ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Less known, Obadiah 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Better known, 1 John 1, 5 to 10. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we, have claim, uh, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out our faith. <laughs> we lie. We don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. The time of the judges is spoken of as a time when everyone did what was good and right in their own eyes. Revelation 3.17. This is a good one. He says, You say I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He's saying, you just barely missed it. He says, you look at yourselves, and here's what you see. We're rich, we're charming, we're good looking. Everybody loves us. He goes, no, 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 no. You couldn't be further from the truth. You are pitiful. You are blind. You're, you're naked and poor and, and sorry. <laughs> and what I'm going to submit to you over the next couple of days, is that the truth is our friend. Love demands truth. This is a series about walking in the light. It's about self-deception, but more than that, it's really about how the power of Christ overcomes our propensity to excuse ourselves, to tell ourselves half-truths, and to acquit ourselves. Self-deception. Here's a definition for you I'm going to work with. 
is when I deceive myself by lying to myself because it benefits me to do so. Okay? So I do this when it benefits me to do so. I just lie to myself. I tell myself what I need to hear for my own benefit. In self-deception, I'm both the deceived and I'm the deceiver. I mislead myself because I would rather be misled than deal with reality to the point that I not only deceive myself, I actually come to believe it. Uh, I was part of a focus group yesterday of all ministers, uh, all in the Churches of Christ, and we were looking at some research, Barna's done some research on just Church of Christ ministers and their well-being. And they asked in that survey, uh, what, I didn't, I didn't throw this one out there in the, in the room for reasons that will become apparent, but uh, they asked them, what are your biggest frustrations about leading in church, about your role in the church? The top two were something to the, the first one I think was uncommitted church members. And the second one was something like uh, apathetic church members. Now, if you go over a couple of pages in the study and, you, and, and it goes to self-perception, the job they think they're doing, uh, they think they're off the charts. Uh, I'm a great preacher. And then they ask, you know, basically, what do you think other people would say? Well, they, I'm sure the congregation would say I'm a great preacher too. Um, they ask about a whole bunch of other self-awareness kinds of questions. And what becomes apparent when you read the study is that they don't see that they play any role in the apathy of their church members. That we, and I'm throwing myself in there because I, I didn't take the survey, but I might have answered the same way. What's the biggest frustration that you have? Well, it's frustrating to see people who you just see God's redemptive potential in them. You can just see, man, if you could just surrender your life fully to Jesus, you have no idea the great things that God could do with you. And yet they fritter life away. Uh, and often they end up turning on you. They go, ah, the church just isn't relevant to me. And you go, no, the church was relevant. You weren't relevant to the church. You never attended. You never gave. You never served. And you just want to say it. You want to you just line everybody up and say, can I just say this once to everybody? If you will dial in, you have no idea the great things the church would do. And what am I doing as I do that? One of the things I'm doing is I'm absolving myself from any role in creating the culture in the church that creates that kind of thing. And I tell myself, it's their fault. It's the church's fault. Young people today just don't want to hear the truth. Something like that. You heard that? You said that this morning to somebody? <laughs> uh, millennials, you know how they are. Uh, you know, you know, millennials just, uh, you know, they just don't do anything. They just live in their parents' basement and good for nothing and expensive and da-da-da-da-da, right? And we say that to ourselves because we need to believe it because if it's not true, then we have to ask some tough questions about how we raised our kids. And so when it comes down to the spiritual formation of people, we are too quick to absolve ourselves. When it comes down to church leadership, we are too quick to absolve ourselves rather than simply saying, okay, where might I, where is it to my benefit to hold the perspective that I hold? Life offers me a deal at all of these turns. The beliefs I have about myself, about myself, myself, that's what a schizophrenic would say, I guess, <laughs> about myself and others doesn't even need to be true to bring me some satisfaction. I just have to believe it. 
Let me throw some things out. So I, I teach here in the summers occasionally uh, here at Pepperdine. Christianity and culture, they have to take the class. It's a GE class. Now, they could take a variety of different 301s. I teach one called Christian Leadership in Times of Chaos. So it's designed to help them unpack all of their personal junk so that when the bullets start flying out in the work world or other places, they can lead in a non-anxious way. Okay? Um, I think that I am a decent professor. Uh, in fact, I might even say that if you line me up against everybody else, that I would be better than average. As it turns out, I'm not alone. 94% of college professors think they're doing a better than average job. 94%. Now, it's not just professors, mind you. A survey of one million high school seniors found that 70% thought that they were above average in leadership ability, and only 2% thought they were below average. Now, in terms of ability to get along with others, get this one. How are you in your ability to get along with others? All students thought they were above average. A million out of a million said, I'm above average. 60% thought they were in the top 10%. 25% of them thought they were in the top 1%. Okay. How can they think that? Obviously, it's not possible. So where does that come from? We begin to tell ourselves stories and that benefit us, things that we need to believe, and as I'm going to make the case tomorrow, when you apply this to church or family, uh, we begin to collude with one another in society to where the things I do, the things that I say, uh, I do, that, that, that causes behaviors in you that verify the stereotype I had about you when I went ahead and did what I did. Uh, this is probably the only political thing I'm going to say, but you can see this very clearly between Trump and the media. The media needs Trump to be Trump. Trump needs the media to be the media. And so Trump acts in ways that causes the media to act the way they do, and the media acts in ways that causes Trump to feel the way he does about the media. It's called collusion. You ever see that? Uh, uh, well, uh, I lived it. Um, you, you, uh, let's say a parent and a, and a kid. The mom's upset because the kid continues to miss curfew all the time. And so uh, this child comes home, and, and the mom lays down the law, for instance, with him and says, hey, you know what, you got to get home on time uh, because you're always late, and if you don't, this is what's going to happen. But in her mind, she just feels like, hey, he's irresponsible, uh, and she's already kind of framed that way of looking at him. So what ends up happening, he comes home right as the, the, the clock strikes, the minute. He walks through the door. And instead of saying, hey, great job getting home on time, because of the way that she sees him, he says, or she says to him, well, of course, you walk in right as the clock strikes 12 or 10 or whatever the time is, which then reinforces his view of her, which is that she's overbearing, which is what makes him want to miss curfew. Okay? So you see how that works? Collusion. Preacher and church members, moms and dads, husband and wife parent and child. Here's, I'm going to give you five ways that we do this. These are all from Tenelshoff's book, okay, ways that he uses the terminology. This is good to write down. Uh, we're going to revisit them. But I'm telling you, once I, I read what he had to say, and I thought deeply about my own life, about my own ministry, about my marriage, about my parenting, it really impacted me in a major way, and I hope it does you as well. 
These are five different ways that we deceive ourselves. First is what we're going to call uh, attention management. Okay, this is where uh, we control what we hear and what we see in order to, to, to reinforce what we already think, okay? This is one we're very, very familiar with. Uh, in the Bible, this is Jonah. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and the reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he thinks that they're terrible people. He says at the end of the book, he goes, that's why I didn't want to go, because I knew you were gracious, and I knew that if I went and I said this, they might repent. And so in order to do that, what does he do? He bails. He gets on a boat. He sails away. Attention management. Um, it is, uh, I, because I don't want any other alternative perspectives, I'm going to do what I have to do to try to isolate myself from alternative worldviews, perceptions, uh, anything, because it benefits me not to have to consider them or listen to them. Uh, this one's huge right now, by the way, out in society. Jonah believes that Nineveh is evil and they should be destroyed. So he eventually has to go preach. He preaches a half-hearted sermon, calling them to repent, and they do. And so Jonah's mad because he'd convinced himself that Nineveh was virtually incapable of repentance, and he wanted only God's wrathful side to be shown. So he hops on a boat, and he takes off. Now, there's a, the way the book of Jonah ends is with a parable from God to Jonah. Parable of the vine uh, that's shown to Jonah on a hot day. God, you may remember the story, grows a vine up over Jonah. Then he sends a worm to kill it. So Jonah's using this as shelter. He's sitting under a shady tree. Then God sends a worm to kill the tree. So now Jonah's back out in the sun again. And Jonah's mad. So here's what God says. This is Jonah 4, 10 to 11. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Now, Jonah had gone to the, the greatest lengths he could to try and make sure he didn't have to think about that, because he didn't want to think about that. He didn't want to. Angry wife. She's so bitter to her husband because of years of, say, neglect or... Um, you know, some other misbehavior kind of within the marriage, that when he sends her roses on her birthday at work, it upsets her more than otherwise, right? Well, he's just doing that because he wants blankety-blankety-blankety-blankety, right? Fill in whatever. And in her mind, she's so jaded toward him now that she's going to do whatever she can. And in fact, the next year, when he asks, hey, hon, where should I, you know, he asks somebody where to send the flowers, she gives him the wrong information because she doesn't even want to have to consider that his heart is softening toward her. Cutting it out. I'm not even going to consider it. Uh, I've seen this in church leadership meetings where you ask a group of elders or you ask a minister, they've got a serious resource challenge on the giving front. Well, have you guys looked at, at what people are giving? Oh, no, nobody does that. Why? Well, it's private. We're going to talk about that in a, 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 tomorrow. Okay. But what's usually the, the case is that they're managing the data. They don't want to have to see it because they know it might shape the way that they saw people. And they like so-and-so. <laughs> they don't want to know that stuff. And so they just manage their attention. Uh, I can remember being in a Bible study here. You preachers, we do this all the time with Scripture, Sermon on the Mount. 
We stay with things like, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, seek first the kingdom of God, things like that. Skipping right over Matthew 16, 6, 19 to 24, which is about money and about not serving two masters and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and, and these kinds of things, which is what sets the table for not worrying and seeking first the kingdom of God. And the reason we don't do it is because people get irritable when we talk about it. Or we are insecure about doing it, so it's easier just not to preach it. When I was a, maybe a sophomore or junior on this campus 20-something years ago, uh, I started a, a Bible study here on the campus, and that's back in the, in the grace days when, when everybody was talking about grace and works, and that was a big thing, especially in the churches of Christ. You had Max Lucado and Lynn Anderson and all these guys going around, and they were uh, talking about grace and works, and, and everybody was, was big on that thing right at that moment in time. I started a Bible study up there, and we were talking about that subject. And there's a young woman that was there and seemed like a sweet gal. Um, and we were, we were just talking about that, that entire issue. And so she was quoting Ephesians 2. Not of works so that no one can boast. And here we go. And, and so I just, because I like to stir the pot and stuff like that on occasion, I, I just asked her, I said, what about that place where Jesus says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. She says, he never said that. And I go, yeah, yeah, he did. And I take my Bible out, and I start to open it up and show her where. And she shuts me down. She doesn't want me to show her. Right? Uh, it's like a snow globe version of Scripture. I want it to snow and be happy in there. And if you do that, then it's going to have to, I'm going to have to wrestle with stuff I don't want to wrestle with. Uh, this is why families keep secrets from each other. And the, the presence of that secret rots the family away from inside. Okay, number two, procrastination. We all know this one. Uh, a most vicious enemy. We agree to do what we should do, just not now. <laughs> I'll do it later. I'll diet next week. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. This is whenever a moral belief moves in and demands uncomfortable action, life offers me the deal again. Go ahead and agree to act on it, just don't do it now. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. I'll start tithing next week. I'll say I'm sorry the next time I see him. I'll get baptized later. I'll have that difficult conversation next week. Procrastination. Number three. Uh, this one's a little trickier. Uh, perspective switching. Perspective switching is when we switch perspectives because no single perspective consistently delivers the views we prefer. Uh, illustration here might be David and Bathsheba, right? Uh, David had convinced himself and others that everything that had happened between him and Bathsheba and her husband Uriah was completely normal. David goes along as normal until what? Until Nathan comes. And he tells him a story about a man, he only had one sheep, and you may remember how the story goes, and what do you think ought to happen to him? I think he, you ought to string him up, is essentially what he says. And then Nathan points out to him, he says, well, you're the guy. And now all of a sudden, David changes the way that he sees the entire problem. Um, in, in the realm of ministry, the way that ministers do this is we… <laughs> Uh, you take something like work ethic, right? We pride ourselves, for instance, on, boy, I, I'm in touch with the flock, man. I will 
I, I sit across the table and I'll drink coffee and listen to their problems and, and I love some sheep, man. That's what we do. And, and you sit there and everything, right? You're a great pastor until somebody walks in and, and tells you, hey, man, it must be good to just sit and drink coffee all week. Wish I could do that. Now what happens? The perspective switches, and now they have no idea how hard I work. You know how hard it is to sit there and listen to people complain all day? Right Now, you just like that, your perspective changed <laughs> Just, you know, because you were deceiving yourself in one way, and now you're probably going to do it in the other way. Okay, so uh, this is where you might uh, find perspective switching at work. Number four, rationalizing. Now, we're good at this one. We all know what this means. Essentially, to rationalize is to construct a rational justification for a behavior, a decision, or a belief arrived at in some other way. Uh, I am writing a book right now. Um, it'll be available probably this time next year. It's due November the 1st, and, and I got to get busy on it. But um, it's called What the Bible Says About Money and Possessions. It's going to be published by College Press. In a, and I wrote a, my project thesis for my doctor of ministry degree at Abilene was on um, the cultivation of generosity in a church. And so in order to write it, I had to do some pretty significant research on the giving patterns of churches. And the entire issue of the way that we look at Scripture, the biggest issue is not going to be to try and figure out what the Bible says. The biggest hurdle I'm going to have to overcome is what people think the Bible says about money. I'll just give you an example, rationalization. Uh, rationalization works like this. Uh, we all know the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm not going to give because I don't want to. And God wouldn't want me to give if I don't want to. That's essentially the theology of giving that goes on in a lot of churches. Now, just think about that. I caricatured a little bit, not much though, in order to emphasize the point. What that verse says is not give to the extent you can be happy about it. What it says is if you can't be happy when you're giving, adjust your attitude is what he's saying. Not adjust your offering to fit your attitude. Adjust your attitude so that you can give in the way that honors God. That's an enormous difference. I mean, think about the ethics of that. If you play that out and you really think, no, only do it when you want to. Where do we do that? Be faithful to your wife if you want to. Tell the truth when you want to. God loves a, a cheerful truth teller. But it's rationalization. 